Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PBN Podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about our sponsor, Newzest. We're going to try things a little bit differently this week, and we've got a special guest in the podcast studio, founder and co-director of Plum-Based News, Mr. Klaus Mitchell. How's it going, Klaus? Really good, Robbie. Great to be here. So what a lot of people don't realize is that many of the products and services that we promote on Plum-Based News are things that we actually use ourselves. This week's podcast is kindly supported by our friends over at Newzest, and I know that you've been using it for a while. I've been using it, but what do you think of it, Klaus? I think it's great. I think I started using it when I saw it in Whole Foods. I bought a tub and then I put it in with, uh, it was a strawberry flavor I put in with my berry smoothie. Um, and that was over six months ago. And uh, now I've got to know the team at Newzest, Jonathan and the crew. Great mission, great company, tastes great, and I'd highly recommend it. So this product is made from golden peas grown in the south of France, an incredibly environmentally friendly crop. It is also sold in 100% recycled plastic tubs as well, so you can recycle the whole thing. Please check out newsest.us forward slash PBN20 to get 20% off your first order. I was talking to the CEO of a big corporation the other day, and he said, Jane, there were three reasons why I changed. One, I saw the writing on the wall. If we go on using nature's finite natural resources as though they're infinite, then that's the end of our business and us. Secondly, consumer pressure. But he said, what tipped the balance was my little girl was 10, and she came back from school one day, and she said, Daddy, they're telling me that what you're doing is hurting the planet. That isn't true is it? It's my planet too. And you know, I truly think it's when head and heart work together that we can attain our true human potential. Welcome back to the PBN Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the legendary Dame Jane Goodall. A leading ethologist, conservationist, anthropologist and activist, Jane Goodall has become a beacon for the scientific and conservation community for decades. Her groundbreaking research and observations on chimpanzee behavior at the Gobi National Park in Tanzania began as early as the 1960s. In 1977, she established the Jane Goodall Institute, which carries on the Gobi research while also advocating for the protection of their natural habitats and spearheading innovation community-centered conservation programs in Africa. Jane Goodall's activist work extends into raising awareness for the lives and well-being of all animals. She has campaigned for the ethical treatment of animals and has spoken against cruelty and inhumane practices and medical testing on animals. Jane Goodall's latest book, The Book of Hope, A Survival Guide for Trying Times, co-authored with Doug Ibrams, both of whom also penned the best-selling The Book of Joy, which published at the end of last year. With a lifetime's worth of research and stories about our relationship with nature, the authors delve into the complex relationship that humankind has with the planet we inhabit. The book highlights the ways in which we can redefine that relationship by discovering and embracing hope in the face of the urgent climate crisis. In 2021, she also was awarded the Templeton Prize and she currently continues to write and teach on conservation issues. I'm beyond thrilled to sit down with Jane Goodall for this enlightening conversation discussing animal suffering, climate change and the most powerful asset in our toolkit, hope. I'm Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and as always, please don't forget to comment and like and share and if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on Plant-Based News. What a pleasure to finally meet you. I've been obviously following your work my entire life uh, and a huge fan of, of everything that you do. You've always inspired me with your incredible and inspiring words uh, for change. So thank you so much. Thank you for that. Day after day, in the sun and the wind and the rain, I climbed into the hills. 
this was where I was meant to be. The first question is regarding your book, your new book. Hope is a central theme that runs through the book, of course, including the title. What are some of the ways that we can inspire hope in other people considering the dark times that face humanity and, and the real sort of challenges we as a species face today? Well, you know, there's no denying the fact that, yes, indeed, we're in very, very dark times, politically, socially, and especially environmentally. And we face the challenge of climate change and loss of biodiversity. These two are linked. And of course, we brought this on ourselves by our absolute disrespect of the natural world just as we brought this pandemic on ourselves by our disrespect of animals. So where lies the hope? I think the reason that I find this book comes out at the right time is because if we lose hope, then we're doomed. Because if you lose hope, why bother? I mean, there's nothing I can do that will make a difference. So the main message is that every single one of us makes some impact on the planet every single day. And if all those who can make wise choices, ethical choices in how they live, what they buy, what they wear, what they eat, especially what they eat, then, you know, we start moving in the right direction. Probably the question I'm asked more than any other is, do you honestly believe there's hope for our world, for the future of our children and grandchildren? And I'm able to answer truthfully, yes. We've caused a divide between the brilliant human intellect and love and compassion that we poetically seat in the human heart. And I think only when head and heart work in harmony can we attain our true human potential. My reasons for hope in these dark times will become clear in this book. But for now, let me say that without hope, all is lost. It's a crucial survival trait that has sustained our species from the time of our Stone Age ancestors. Certainly my own improbable journey would have been impossible had I lacked hope. Hope is contagious. Your actions will inspire others. It is my sincere desire that this book will help you find solace in a time of anguish, direction in a time of uncertainty, courage in a time of fear. Let us use the gift of our lives to make this a better world. For the sake of our children and theirs, for the sake of people struggling with poverty, for the sake of the lonely, and for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the natural world, the animals, the plants, the trees. Find your reasons for hope and let them guide you onward. What are some of the other key themes that run through the book and are there call to actions and practical ways in which people can actually build hope in their lives? Yes, I spent a lot of time thinking about what, I, what do I mean by hope? It's not looking at the world through rose-tinted spectacles and saying, oh, I hope everything's going to be okay. It's not like that. And I, I've seen it now as like we're in a very, very dark tunnel. And at the end of this long tunnel is a little gleam of light, and that's hope. But to get there, we have to go under, climb over, work our way around many obstacles. But if we give up and just stay at the end of the tunnel, hope will not come. So that's how I'm looking at hope. And everybody in their lives can make choices unless 
they're very, very poor. And that's one of the big problems because poverty leads to people in rural areas destroying the environment they have to do it to live, cut down the trees to get more land to grow crops or make money from charcoal or timber. If you're in an urban area, you have to buy the cheapest food. You can't afford to say, did it harm the environment when it was manufactured, when it was made? Is it cheap because of unfair wages or child slave labor, something like that? we can afford to make those choices and if everybody makes those choices you know then we're as i said moving towards a better world so you know my reasons for hope are first of all the amazing intellect okay it's got us into a mess we've created atomic bombs and nasty weapons of war but we've also sent people onto the moon and I think there's going to be a full moon quite soon. And I would ask everybody to look up there and get that feeling of wonder and awe that I had when I heard about the first landing on the moon. To me, it was science fiction. I grew up in a different world. And just think, wow, people walked up there. And of course, we've got the internet, which is allowing you and me to talk and this talk to be beamed out all over the place. So the strange thing is that this most intellectual creature, it's what separates us more than anything from the other animals, this creature is destroying its only home. We know that. There isn't another planet near enough for us to go and colonize when we finish trashing this one. So we better look up at what we've got. And here's where the intellect comes in. Scientists are beginning to come up with innovative technologies that enable us to live in greater harmony. And people are beginning to realize each one of us also can make a difference. So that's one of the reasons for hope. And then the energy commitment and passion of young people, once they know what the problems are, and we empower them to take action. And, you know, it was back in 91, I was meeting people as I was traveling, lecturing, young people all over the world. And many of them seemed to have lost hope. And they were either angry or they were deeply depressed or they just didn't seem to care. They were just apathetic. Why? Because you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, yes, we have compromised their future and we're still doing it. But is it true there's nothing they can do? No, it's not true. And so I began this Roots and Shoots program which is now in 65 countries with members from preschool, university, everything in between. More and more older people like the staff of a big corporation are forming groups. And the main message is that each one of us makes a difference every day. And because I learned in the rainforest that everything is interconnected, each group chooses, they choose, we don't tell them, three projects to make the world better. One for people, one for animals, one for the environment. And they don't all have to do all of it. Of course, in the very young children, they need guidance, but the older children choose. But they must share as a group what the different little subgroups are doing to make the world a better place. And then nature, so resilient. I mean, places we've absolutely destroyed if we give them a chance, nature can come back, biodiversity can come back. 
and then finally what I call the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle what seems impossible and don't give up. Amazing. That sounds familiar, the indomitable hu human spirit. Um, my uh, mentor, in my Buddhist mentor, Daisaku Ikeda. Have you heard of Daisaku Ikeda? I don't think so. Uh, he's a Japanese uh, peace activist, writer, and poet, and he talks about oh, right. the human spirit. And, and he often talks about the power of the individual, that we as people do not realize the power that we have, particularly with our voice and, and the power that that holds. Uh, but it's very important to build courage and compassion in ourselves, because if we don't have courage and compassion, it's very hard to take action. That leads me on to my next question. We live in a world where it is consumed by consumerism. Capitalism has kind of created this very fragile society, which we've seen with COVID-19, how things can very quickly turn on a, on a knife edge. How can we inspire compassion and courage in other people when, you know, the world does seem so troubled, people do seem so hopeless, as you said? Are there practical ways in which we as advocates or campaigners or activists, how can we inspire what, how we feel that sense of hope practically with other people? Well, I was doing that by traveling around the world 300 days a year lecturing. Now I'm doing it on Zooms and Skypes and interviews like this. I've never been as exhausted in my whole life. It's every single day, Zooms and, you know, all these staring at a screen. Not good for the voice, it's not good for the eyes. But the positive side is that I've reached literally millions more people. So Although it's very, very hard to give a virtual lecture, you know, you, you don't get any audience feedback. You're just talking to a little green spot on top of the laptop. But if you don't get the right enthusiasm and energy into that talk, then you might as well not do it. And it was my amazing mother who supported me from word go, supported my love of animals, supported my dream of Africa when everyone laughed. And she said to me, Jane, if you're going to do a thing, do it properly or not at all. We're very good advice. So this is how I am trying to inspire other people. And you have to tell stories, you know, stories about these amazing people, amazing things, stories about areas that we destroyed that are again supporting life, stories about children that are so moving. That's the way if people say, oh, she did it, I can do it too. Mm. Such great advice. I think storytelling is so powerful. Um, we use it a lot here at Plant Based News. We often call it in the campaigning world, the theory of change, giving people that inspiration, showing them that it is possible. Because when there is hopelessness, I think it comes from a lack of belief that we can change as a species, that the world can be different. And it absolutely can. You know, as you said, you've traveled the world, you've met so many people who are bringing that hope and that resilience to the world. Because obviously, as long as there are people doing this, there will always be hope. Come on. Come on. It's how you might imagine Jane Goodall to be. Stop screaming at me. We just met and were setting up, but the famed naturalist was yeah, more focused on a visit from a robin there you are. than our camera crew. Oops, hello, bee. She first learned about the bees and, yes, the birds here at her childhood home in Bournemouth, England. You grew <laughs> up looking out on this garden, mm. dreaming of another world. Yep. I did. And she found it in the Gombe rainforest of Tanzania, where her groundbreaking work studying chimpanzees in the 1960s made her a National Geographic cover girl. 
at age 87, she can still be found on the front of magazines and running a conservation empire. Her Jane Goodall Institute, dedicated to protecting wildlife in the environment, has chapters in two dozen countries. And there's Roots and Shoots, a program to engage youth around the world. My next question is, in all the years that you've worked with animals as an ethologist, getting to know them in their natural environment, what are some of the most important lessons you've learned from animals? Well, I think actually I learned a lot from animals when I was a child, because, I, you know, as I've said, I was born loving animals and we were lucky to have a big garden. We had very little money, but it was my grandmother's house. Uh, and the mortgage was paid by her son, who was a surgeon, the only one who had money. Anyway, we've got this nice big garden and I was out there and I'm near the ocean, the Mediterranean Channel, and there's cliffs rising up and I would be there watching the squirrels and the birds and things. And at that time, I had a wonderful teacher who taught me that when I went to Cambridge and was told by the erudite professors that after my years with chimps, I shouldn't be talking about them as having personalities, minds or emotions. Those were unique to us. I shouldn't have empathy with my subject. To be a good scientist, you must be coldly objective. I'd learned as a child that that was absolutely not true. And that was my dog, Rusty, who's behind me here. And so I was able to, you know, stick up for myself. I didn't argue with the professors. I just went on quietly describing the amazing behavior of the chimps, how they care for each other, how they hug and kiss, how they swagger, how they compete for dominance rather like male human politicians, uh, sadly that they have this dark aggressive side, but also show love and compassion. Uh, for a long time I thought chimps were like us, but nicer. And I realized they too have a dark, brutal, aggressive side. So it sort of, I think Lewis wanted me to study the chimps because he felt it would help him better understand how early humans might have behaved. Um, and so when you, when you start seeing so many human characteristics in the chimps, like the gentle maternal behavior, the, the, uh, the family bonds, the relations between older brothers and sisters, the, the long-term bond with the mother, uh, the, you know, the, this desire for dominance in some of the males, all these very human characteristics, um, the empathy, the grief, shown by a mother when she loses her child, or a child when he loses his mother. Uh, the fact that they have altruism, that a young male will adopt an orphan, even if it's not related to him. And then finding they have this warlike, brutal, aggressive behavior. And, you know, helping to understand more about some of the behaviors that we brought with us from our ancient primate past when there were ape-like, human-like creatures, and we went one way and they went the other. When I was told that there was a difference in kind between us and other animals, it really shocked me. Luckily, the National Geographic Center filmmaker, Hugo van Loeg, and what with my detailed descriptions, minute by minute, of chimp behavior, and then Hugo coming along with film, showing tool using and things, science gradually changed. I never. It isn't my way to be argumentative 
and you know say no no you're wrong just quietly go on and you find that you turn people around and certainly back then you know when the world was very much more male dominated even than it is now if i'd started arguing with these erudite older males they, they would have got angry i think people but have to change from within and that's such good advice and i think you know we can learn a lot from animals from their tranquil kind of childlike natures their innocence right i think often look at the cows in the field or the sheep running in the paddocks and see that innocence about them that sort of childlike nature and it does sometimes fill me with sadness i'm going to be honest i do feel the sadness that many of these innocent beings that do have their own inner worlds you know they think and smell and see and breathe and dream like we do they may not have the complexities of language that we do but they are well, they're the same as us in all the ways that matter and my next question is about animal sentience this is something that has been you know intrinsic to your work and you as a person for many many years why do you think that people have for many centuries and even now today many people still see animals as mere objects and not sentient living thinking feeling beings like we do where do you think that disconnection comes in well it comes in from scientists thinking like those professors at cambridge and just believing in themselves i suppose although i can't quite believe that they did and I think, you know, when people say, what do, you, what do you think your major contribution has been? I think it is. Once science accepted that chimpanzees, whom we share 98.6% of our DNA, and all these behaviors that I mentioned, by the way, I don't think they're particularly innocent. They're too like us. They can be really mean, nasty. But uh, with cows and sheep, yes. Anyhow, once once you realize that there really isn't this barrier that science had erected, then it's not just the chimpanzees who are sentient, feeling, emotional beings with their own individual individuality. You can stretch right down and now science is becoming open to these things. You can actually study animal emotions. I couldn't have back in 60 because it didn't exist, <laughs> but now you can study it. And I'm sure you've seen my octopus teacher, this wonderful film about, you know, the relationship with an octopus that got an Oscar. And so where it, for, for students wanting to study animal behavior, it's a very exciting time because we're finding out more and more. And the tragedy, of course, is that billions of animals are in these awful factory farms. And it's not just the unbelievable cruelty sentient beings, unbelievable cruelty. But it's also the fact it's trashing the environment, destroying habitats in order to grow the grain to feed them, masses of fossil fuel to get the grain to the animals, the animals to be slaughtered, the meat to the table, using a lot of water in places where water is increasingly scarce. And finally, all of these animals are producing methane, which is one of the very, very virulent greenhouse gases and quite a large percent of, of methane going up into the environment is from intensive animal farming. And then of course we've got the farming of crops. I'm not saying they're intellectual sentient beings, although we do know that trees communicate, but this intensive farming with its, you know, re relying on chemical pesticides, herbicides, artificial fertilizer, it's killing the soil. And as 
pests and non-pests are killed. That's harming the biodiversity of huge areas, these monocultures. Those are the things that we've got to fight to stop. You loved animals and then really immediately started working with, with them right away, right? Well, it was, it was not that easy, but I loved them when I was born. I studied worms, I studied chickens, I studied all kinds of things. I met Dr. Doolittle book when I was eight, Tarzan when I was 10. Of course, I fell in love with Tarzan. Sure. And yeah. what did he do? He married the wrong Jane. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> anyway, that was when my dream began. I will grow, grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals, and write books about them. You know, we weren't scientists in those days, women. Yeah. And everybody laughed except my mother. And what she said to me is what I say to young people around the world. If you really want this, you'll have to work really hard, take advantage of all opportunities, but don't give up. That's a good message so. to, to give to everyone. We're coming to a, a point of no return, I believe. Many environmentalists are talking about the cascade effects of climate breakdown, obviously led mostly in part due to animal agriculture. My next question is really just how do we, regarding ourselves as people, how do we avoid becoming misanthropic? We know that our species is incredibly destructive. You, you and I have discussed it briefly in this, in this interview but many young activists, particularly young vegan activists, do quite easily become very misanthropic, very human-hating in their activism. How do we avoid that? Because as we know, you know, misanthropy can lead to depression, it can lead to self-loathing, it can lead to a lot of mental health problems. But how do we avoid hating our species, knowing just how destructive we are as a, as a, as a species of great ape? Well, that's, that's what we try to do with our Roots and Toots program, bring young people together from different parts of the world, usually virtually, so that they get to understand what humanity is all about and that more important than the color of your skin or your language or your culture or your religion even, is the fact we're all human beings. And then having realized that, well, you know, we are animals too. We are animals. And somehow, because we've got this intellect, because we developed language at some point so that we could bring people together to try and solve problems in a way that no animal can. Then, again, stories. I think stories. Anyway, this is what we try to do with Roots and Shoots, to let young people know, one, that they matter, but two, don't be angry. You need anger to start something, but don't show it. Just let it be a driver of positive action. Such good advice. Would you say that hope might be an antidote to many of these things like misanthropy? If people feel hope and feel a sense of purpose, perhaps misanthropy might not have a place in a person's heart. Yeah, probably. Probably. I mean, to, to me, hope is, is everything because if you're not hoping what you're doing is going to work, why bother to do it? So, the, I mean, I totally sympathize with people who feel they're getting nowhere. You know, we've got COP26. I'm not thrilled with what I hear coming out of COP26. Lots of pledges, yes. Um, we've had so many big meetings with pledges and promises and commitments that haven't been followed through. And I pray I'm wrong and that these commitments will be followed through, will be laws enacted to make it happen. But I don't know. So it's ultimately going to be up to us. And I think one good sign 
is that some of our very early Roots and Tutors, we began in 91, they're now out in decision-making positions, some of them, and they hang on to the values they acquired. I don't know why we didn't push them into it, but one, for ex just one example, is the Environment Minister in Tanzania at a time when a previous president was threatening death to anyone who opposed his plan to build a dam in a beautiful area. But this man opposed him and luckily didn't lose his life. He lost his job, of course. But that's, those are the values that we need people to have. And without hope, he won't bother to do things like that. Absolutely. Coming to the end now, my final question is going back to your book. What are some of the things that you want people to think, feel and do once they've read your book? Well, basically what I've said, I want them to realize that they as an individual do matter. I can't say exactly what people should think and act and do because it's going to be different depending how old you are, uh, which country you're in. It's translated already into 12 languages, I think. Anyway, it's going to depend on uh, your job, what you do, what kind of differences you can make. But one thing we all have to do is to try and lead as leave as light an ecological footprint as we can to think about how we use energy to think about whether we could walk or ride a bicycle you know to think about what we buy and where and how it was made and consumer pressure really is making a difference to many big businesses and i was talking to the ceo of a big corporation international the other day and it's a corporation that has totally it's almost completely off the grid following up to look for ethical behavior along the supply chain and in the country where the goods are produced and he said jane there were three reasons why i changed one i saw the writing on the wall if we go on using nature's finite natural resources as though they're infinite when in fact in some places they're being used faster than nature can replenish them then that's the end of our business and us. Then he said, secondly, consumer pressure. More and more people are demanding ethically produced goods. We have to get better labeling. That's something else people can fight for. But he said, what tipped the balance was about five years ago, six years ago, my little girl was 10 and she came back from school one day and she said, daddy, they're telling me that what you're doing is hurting the planet. That isn't true, is it? It's my planet too. And you know, I truly think it's when head and heart work together that we can attain our true human potential. Each of us in our own way, in our own sphere. I love that. That's such a beautiful thing, Jane. Thank you for sharing that story. It's, uh, to me, it's about the alignment of all things in us as people. And I think when we are truly aligned to our true nature, which is one of great compassion and courage and kindness, because I do believe humans are innately kind and compassionate, given the right opportunities and given the right environments. But before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and if it was just you and a pig, obviously you don't eat the pig because you don't eat animals, but if you were on, on this desert island and I gave you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you on this desert island? Oh, goodness. Well, I can't answer you about the music album because I'm not into the... I mean, I, I would opt for some classical music, probably... Mozart or Beethoven, maybe Beethoven, or an album of different classical music. The book, 
I'd take either Shakespeare or The Lord of the Rings, and I think I would take The Lord of the Rings because it takes you into a completely different world and you're absolutely believing that it's real. And what was the third thing I uh, was One take? vegan dish that you could take with you on your desert island. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not into the various dishes. I just eat vegetables and lentils and That's the great. various things, nuts, you know, a, a mixture of those All the things. Healthy stuff. I think, <laughs> I think fancy. I would just cook up vegetables, which I presume I'm allowed to grow on this island. Absolutely. I love that. That sounds very healthy. And uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, eating foods in their most natural form. So that's great to hear. That's yeah, but I, will, I will take the pig, if you don't mind, because the pig will root in the ground and make it all nice for me to plant my seeds to grow the vegetables for me and the pig. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jane Goodall, for joining us on PBN's uh, podcast and, of course, on our YouTube channel as well. It's what a pleasure to meet you and looking forward to telling everyone about your book and sharing your story uh, with our audience. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and I've enjoyed talking with you as well. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Robbie Lockie and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, veganism, fashion, technology, animals and everything in between. <laughs>